conclusion. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings from the Diffusion Science Team. Find a comfy seat and choose your beverage as we fill your ears with some Halloween-inspired science. I'm Vanessa Gardos. In this spooky edition, we'll feature a story about werewolves and we'll hear about a monster from the Burgess Shale. But first up, here's the news with Mark West. Recently, North Korea has been making quite a storm with its nuclear tests. But not to be outdone, their cousins in South Korea have been conducting some of their own wacky science. Well, not all South Koreans, just one. It was revealed this week that the disgraced stem cell scientist, Professor Juan Woo-suk, spent private donations for his research to pay the Russian mafia for mammoth tissues to clone the extinct species. You may remember Huang, who was once celebrated as a national hero in South Korea, as the guy who was indicted in May on charges of fraud and embezzlement after prosecutors said he was the mastermind of a scheme to make it look like his team had produced stem cells through cloning human embryos. That is, he faked it all. He revealed recently that he spent part of more than one million US dollars in corporate donations for peripheral activities related to research. Some of the money was spent in contacting the Russian mafia as we tried to clone mammoths, Huang told a court hearing this week. Apparently, he couldn't tell those who gave him the donations this, so he said he was using the money to experiment on cows. He obtained the mammoth tissues from glaciers and tried to clone them three times, but failed. Prosecutors have charged Wang with fraud to secure funds and misusing 2.9 million US dollars in state funds and private donations, as well as violating bioethics laws in procuring human eggs for research. An investigation found his team fabricated key data in the two papers on embryonic stem cells that were once heralded. He now faces the possibility of jail time and massive fines. Scientists say that they have found a way to make an object invisible. Well, sort of. Scientists have worked out how to hide objects from microwave radiation, something I'm sure the Defence Department would be interested in. The cloaking device is said to deflect microwaves so that they flow around a hidden object inside it with little distortion, making it seem as if there was almost nothing there. Such a device could one day be used to elude radar or in wireless communications. It's not quite Harry Potter, said Professor David Smith of Duke University in North Carolina. It's not exactly perfect, but we can do better. But it demonstrates the mechanism, the way that waves swirl around the centre region where you want to conceal things, said Smith who publishes the results online today in the journal Science. One drawback is that the cloak only works in two dimensions, but the researchers have already started work on a 3D version. And the cloak also works only with microwaves of a specific wavelength, and the researchers hope to broaden the range of wavelengths that it can block. Who knows what I could do if I were invisible? Hmm. Now, remember black and white television? I don't. While the picture may have been white and various shades of grey, chances are that we gave those images just a tiny hint of colour. 
A new study in the journal Nature Neuroscience shows us that colour perception depends not only on an object's true colour, but also on our knowledge of what it's supposed to look like. Researcher Karl Gegenfurter of Justus Liebig University in Gießen, Germany, and his colleagues showed people images of common fruits and vegetables. They then asked viewers to manipulate the colours in each image to make them appear like they lacked all colour. Fixed ideas about a fruit's natural colour predisposed observers' perceptions of its actual colour. For example, to make a banana look black and white, participants adjusted it to have a slight tinge of blue to compensate. Blue is the opposite colour to yellow, so it helped to even out the perceived colour and make it look neutral. For lettuce to appear black and white, it had to be made slightly red, and tomatoes ended up with a hint of green. The results, according to the research team, show that colour sensations are not determined by the incoming sensory information alone, but they can be significantly changed by high-level visual memory or expectation as well. Thanks, Mark. Now, no Diffusion Halloween show would be complete without a good hard look at animals and the mythology that has changed them into the ravenous beasts of our campfire stories. Lachlan Watmore takes a look at lycanthropy, which is the unfortunate habit of certain people to change into werewolves. We're not kidding. Lycanthropy, or the propensity of people to metamorphose into a wild animal, usually a wolf, has been one of the most successful devices in horror stories down through the centuries. Stories of werewolves are a feature of a huge number of countries, including France, Greece, Spain, Bulgaria, Serbia, Russia, Ukraine, Scotland, England, Ireland, Germany, Scandinavia, Argentina, and some North American cultures as well. These myths have been around for a long time and have often been updated during cultural upheaval. For example, werewolf stories in Europe have been around since ancient times and were given fresh impetus with the arrival of Christianity. The mechanism of how the unfortunate changed into a werewolf simply became diabolical rather than spiritual, or in other words, the devil assumed responsibility for the transformation rather than some superstition such as a pissed-off Olympian god. The word lycanthropy is derived from the Greek lycanthropos, In Greek mythology, the king of Arcadia, a man called Lycaon, attempted to serve human flesh, his own son no less, to Zeus, who was paying him a visit. The object of this was to disprove the divinity of Zeus, but it backfired on old Lycaon. Zeus sniffed him out and turned him into a ravenous wolf for daring to try and trick him. Roman literature frequently mentions lycanthropy. Herodotus, Virgil, Pliny the Elder and Gaius Petronius all tell stories of individuals and sometimes whole tribes metamorphosing into wolves, and not always malevolently. Pliny the Elder tells the story of a man who swam across a river and arrived on the other bank a wolf. He was required to wander as a wolf for nine years, and if he didn't attack a human during that time, he could swim back across the river and resume his human shape. With the coming of Christianity, werewolves were created not just as the result of diabolical interaction, but could also be made by saints themselves. It is said that St. Patrick turned a Welsh king called Vereticus into a wolf, and that St. Natalis cursed an entire family into lycanthropy. A third saint, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas stated, 
Omnes angeli bone et mali ex virtute naturali habent potestatum transmutandi copra nostra, which as I'm sure everyone knows means all angels, good and bad, have the power of transmutating our bodies. And of course, werewolves in modern cinema have gotten on famously. I remember being left sleepless for many nights after watching some poor schmuck metamorphosing into a ravenous monster and listening to my dad talk about watching the classic Lon Chaney Wolfman movie when he was a kid. For some reason, a werewolf was never quite as scary fully metamorphosed as he was half metamorphosed, with his human reasoning still intact and thus screaming at his loved ones, to get away from me before I eat you! His hair was perfect. All right, let's leave mythology and have a look at how the werewolf phenomenon became so persistent. Firstly, let's look at the association of wolves and humans themselves. Canis lupus, the European wolf, has usually had an antagonistic relationship with Homo sapiens, particularly with farmers. At the same time, the wolf has assumed a certain nobility, particularly in the Roman world. Roman centurions would wear a wolf pelt to show their rank, and the legend of Romulus and Remus, the mythological founders of Rome, says that they were suckled by a she-wolf when they were babies. The wolf was just thus a powerful symbol in Roman culture and in many other cultures as well. Now, in every other society down through the ages, there's always been a certain incidence of antisocial behaviour. Many researchers have speculated that the incidence of werewolf and, for that matter, vampire mythology has been due to a need to explain the behaviour of serial killers. This has given some credence when you look at some modern serial killers and the incidence of cannibalism and mutilation. In modern psychology, there is a condition called clinical lycanthropy. I'd like now to read you a case report made by two American researchers in the 1970s, Dr. Harvey Rosenstock and Dr. Kenneth R. Vincent, in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 1977. A 49-year-old married woman presented on an urgent basis for psychiatric evaluation because of delusions of being a wolf and, quote, feeling like an animal's with claws, unquote. She suffered from extreme apprehension and felt that she was no longer in control of her own fate. She said, a voice was coming out of me. Throughout her 20-year marriage, she experienced compulsive urges towards bestiality and adultery. The patient chronically ruminated and dreamed about wolves. One week before her admission, she acted on these ruminations for the first time. At a family gathering, she disrobed, assumed the female sexual posture of a wolf and offered herself to her mother. This episode lasted for approximately 20 minutes. The following night, after coitus with her husband, the patient suffered a two-hour episode during which time she growled, scratched and gnawed at the bed. She stated that the devil came into her body and she became an animal. Simultaneously, she experienced auditory hallucinations. There was no drug involvement or alcoholic intoxication. Hospital course. The patient was treated in a structured inpatient program. She was seen daily for individual psychotherapy and was placed on neuroleptic medication. During the first three weeks, she suffered relapses. When she said such things as, I am a wolf of the night, I am a wolf woman of the day, I have claws, teeth, fangs, hair, and anguish is my prey at night, the gnashing and snarling of teeth, powerless is my cause, I am what I am and will always roam the earth long after death, I will continue to search for perfection and salvation. She would peer into a mirror and look frightened because her eyes looked different. One is frightened and the other is like the wolf. It was dark, deep and full of evil and full of revenge of the other eye. This creature of the dark wanted to kill, unquote. During these periods, she felt sexually aroused and tormented. She experienced strong sexual urges, almost irresistible zoophilic drives and masturbatory compulsions, culminating in the delusion of a wolf-like metamorphosis. 
She would gaze into the mirror and see, quote, the head of a wolf in the place of a face on my own body, just a long-nosed wolf with teeth groaning, snarling, growling with claws and fangs, calling out, I am the devil. Others around her noticed the unintelligible, animal-like noises she made. By the fourth week, she had stabilised considerably, reporting, I went and looked into a mirror and the wolf eye was gone. There was only one other short-lived relapse, which responded to reassurance by experienced personnel. With the termination of that episode, which occurred on the night of a full moon, she wrote what she experienced. I don't intend to give up my search for what I lack. In my present marriage, my search for such a hairy creature, I will haunt the graveyards for a tall, dark man that I intend to find. She was discharged during the ninth week of hospitalisation on neuroleptic medication. And that was our resident psychiatric zoologist, Lachlan Watmore, on the subject of wolf and man.
and your surnames, Wolf. Is this all sounding a little bit familiar? Somebody's been watching too many movies. Um, yeah. Like someone who's possessed. Well, it's a fascinating one. I remember seeing John Saffron get exorcised on his television show, and he's quite a good actor. Uh, he's a good personality. I thought maybe he was faking it, but we got to a stage there where it just looked so unbelievable that he could be faking it. And I was wondering about the power of suggestion. Well, you'd be surprised what a group uh, can do. You get a group of people together and you get this overwhelming peer group pressure, Mm. which is what I think of. Once upon a long time ago, I went along to a religious gathering. Denomination will remain uh, unknown. and uh, A cult. Yeah, you might you might just say that, and uh, you know it's this constant uh, uh, reappraisal of the the central message and everything. A whole bunch of fairly simple things, but just kept being repeated over and over. I wasn't particularly impartial to that in my rational mind, but something inside me started to make me feel incredibly sick. I stumbled out of there, walked across the park, and threw up. And I'm not joking; it was not fun one little bit. It was horrible. The wow, power so. of suggestion. If you've got a charismatic character and if you've got a group setting where there's expectations, yeah. um, the power of suggestion could be pretty powerful. You can There's been conversions in all sorts of directions under those conditions. You've also got a whole bunch of people basically swimming in the same direction psychologically. And you, you basically encourage... It's like trying to swim against the current. That's, a, I think, a good metaphor for it. It's, yeah, it was not fun one little bit. So do you think if you were exercised, Mark, that you'd be, the demons would come out? No one can exercise, Mark. <laughs> I think there's a lot inside me that should just never be touched, Ian. <laughs> what was that again, Locke? <laughs> Something like that, I don't know. Times like this that we wish you were here in the studio to see Lachlan do his lovely little dance to the Monsters theme there. (laughs) Which does lead us nicely into our next feature, because it's often been said that truth is stranger than fiction. On Diffusion, we do like to demonstrate that truth is stranger than science fiction. Forget the alien or the predator, Lachlan Watmore has got a creature that redefines the word weird. I was sitting in a biology class once upon a time and found myself blown away by a slide the lecturer was showing. The slide was an artist's reconstruction of a marine animal extinct since long before the dinosaurs, way back in the Middle Cambrian period, about 500 million years ago. I swear you'll never see an animal so strange in your life. Imagine a tube-like body with what appears to be a bulbous, slightly human-looking head held high at one end, and a kind of tail, again held up like a frisky dog at the other. From what might be the animal's dorsal or back surface emerge what appear to be tentacles, about seven of them, possibly paired, although this is yet to be proved. 
Most bizarre of all, 14 spines arranged in seven pairs, emerging from what might be the animal's ventral surface, splay out from the body and perhaps might be called legs. So a tube trunk, wafting tentacles on the top of the tube, 14 rigid spines on the bottom, one end of the tube curled up and a bulbous head on the other end. The man that described this animal, a paleontologist called Simon Conway Morris, decided that the animal had a bizarre and dreamlike quality. From this classically scientific understatement came the animal's name, Hallucigenia. Hallucigenia sparsa started off in the human mind as a marine worm. It was first discovered in the Burgess Shale, a sedimentary rock formation in the Canadian province of British Columbia, by the paleontologist Charles Doolittle Walcott. Walcott had come across the Burgess Shale in the early 20th century during one of his many field trips and had recognised the enormous value of the shale in paleontological terms. The Burgess is a fine-grade sediment which thus preserves specimens in exquisite detail, but even better was deposited in a relatively anoxic or oxygen-free environment. This prevented, to a certain extent, the decomposition of the soft tissues of the animals buried in it. Therefore, the Burgess Shale has preserved not only the hard parts, but also the soft parts of its fauna. This is extremely rare in nature. However, perhaps the Burgess Shale's greatest asset is its age. The shale was deposited at a time when the diversity of life on Earth was probably at its greatest, following an enormous evolutionary expansion of different forms known as the Cambrium Explosion. A huge variety of genera appeared quite quickly in geological terms, and with its anoxic, fine-grained sediment, the Burgess is utterly priceless in giving us a record of them. One of the things I find really cool about the Burgess is the fact that it might be called a product of God's Research and Development Department. The reason for this is that the Burgess Shale contains creatures that simply cannot be placed into modern phyla. The word phyla is the plural of the word phylum, which is a level of biological classification just below that of kingdom. Humans are members of the phylum Chordata. Sea urchins belong to Echinodermata, insects to the phylum Arthropoda, etc., etc. Hallucigenia, by contrast, has not been definitively placed into any modern phylum. Walcott originally classified it as an annelid or segmented worm and called it Canadia, or Canadia if you prefer. Conway Morris couldn't find any annelid evidence and reclassified it as phylum unknown. Later, it was tentatively put into the phylum Lobopodia, which was a sort of cast-off bin for worm-like creatures. I should mention at this point that there's also the possibility that Hallucigenia isn't its own animal at all, but a broken-off appendage of a larger one. In 1991, Chinese researchers reclassified Hallucigenia by turning it upside down and making the tentacles its feet and the spines dorsal protection like an echidna. The bulbous head was downgraded as perhaps a blob that turned up when the animal was preserved, and indeed the use of the word head was tentative to begin with. Nobody has ever found any evidence of cephalization there. There are no discernible mouth parts or sense organs. It's just a blob. It was soon discovered that the tentacles had small pincer-like claws on the ends of them, and this led to hallucigenia being classified as an onychophoran. Onychophorans are a small phylum of creatures known as velvet worms and are regarded as a classic missing evolutionary link. 
In this case, the link is between annelid worms and arthropods, such as insects and crustacea. An excellent example of an onychophoran is the velvet worm Peripetus, which looks vaguely like a caterpillar with its legs splayed out, and on the tips of the legs, small pincer-like claws, just like Hallucigenia. However, look up the classification of Hallucigenia and you'll find a question mark beside its designated phylum. The jury is still out, and I kind of hope it stays there. Nailing down a hard and fast classification of this most enigmatic critter would be a bit like finding out the truth about Santa Claus. It'd take all the fun out of it. Fish. Sorry, just being surreal. That was Lachlan Watmore and the most insane animal to walk the earth. If you want to see what hallucigenia looks like, just type H-A-L-L-U-C-I-G-E-N-I-A into the search engine of your choice. And that's all from us in this special Halloween edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, we're always happy to hear your feedback, comments and adoring praise. Get in touch at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or check out our podcast feed, feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. Contributing to the program were Mark West, Lachlan Watmore and Ian Wolfe, who also produced and panelled. This edition of Diffusion has come from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Vanessa Gardos. Make sure you join us next week for more fantastic science on Diffusion Science Radio. The house is a museum when people come to see them. They really are a scream, the Adams family. Neat, sweet, petite. So get a witch's shawl on, a broomstick you can crawl on. We're gonna pay a call on the Adams family.